So here we are. We're in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 6. Um, so we're just doing our, our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. This is a slow, methodical study. We're trying to get as much as we can out of the text itself. This isn't where I just try to use the text to preach whatever I feel like, but rather to try to really like get as much as we can out of the word of God that's, that's there for us. So in uh, verses 1 through 5, Paul talked about his calling. I'm Paul. I'm a bondservant of Christ. I am called to be an apostle. And then in verse 6, he mentions, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You're called too. You have a calling too. Now, Paul was called, and we see it, and we, and we naturally celebrate his calling. He's an apostle. Like, whoa, this is big, big stuff. I mean, uh, many of us wouldn't even want to be in that role because we just feel like we'd blow it. <laughs> I don't know that I would do as good as Paul, you know, as far as faithfulness to the Lord. And I, I hope I would, but I certainly wouldn't presume it. And, um, and so then we, we wonder, what about me? What, what's my calling? What's my calling? What am I called to do? Can I see my calling in my life? Now, when I went to the, the school of ministry over at Calvary Costa Mesa, um, there was a lot of pressure that people would put on there. They'd be like, Paul was called to be an apostle. What are you called to be? You better know. You better know. And I remember hearing them share that, and I just always thought the same thing. I have no idea. I have no idea what I'm called to be. Like what my calling or ministry giftings are going to be. I just knew I wanted to be faithful to the Lord. I thought... I, I wasn't sure, but I thought I had a gift in teaching. I found myself explaining the Bible to people a lot. They'd ask questions or you know, things would be going on. And I, I, I'd be like, well, I, I know what it means. And I, I'd just be able to explain it and stuff like that. And so um, I was a worship leader, but I didn't feel that that was like my, my ultimate calling from God. And I could be wrong because my feelings are frequently wrong. <laughs> so, but I remember feeling this pressure about knowing your calling. I remember taking a spiritual gift test. How many of you have taken a spiritual gift test? One of those? You can get them online, and they're not a bad thing. A lot of people mock them. I don't think they're bad. I think they're actually a good thing. Um, a spiritual gift test asks, asks you a series of questions, and the conclusions then at the end, it, it tries to like sort of pigeonhole what gifts they think you probably have based on how you answer the questions. So it might be like, do you, do you like gardening? And you're like, mm, yes, I love gardening. And so they go, gift of faith. Because like when you garden, you plant, and you have to wait and you have to have faith. So here's the, the good, the bad side of spiritual gift tests is it's not really about your spiritual gifts, is it? It's more about your tendencies and your preferences and what you tend to do. And it's more about telling you what you already do. And then thinking about the skills you already have and how they might relate to serving the Lord in ministry. That's a good thing. Maybe you have skill sets and certain tendencies that you didn't really think about because they're natural to you. And in ministry, you know, it would help. We could use an organizer who's over there. You know, we could use this kind of person or that kind of person in this ministry. So in a sense, it's a good thing. I don't, I, I don't knock it. Don't knock it. But don't think that it's like of the Lord. It's just, it's just a thing. <laughs> so there's a lot of pressure, a lot of people th thinking this, especially younger people. Like, what's my calling? What's my calling? And like as though we could take our calling from God for our lives and summarize it with one word. But that's often not the case. So let's come back to that. Let, let's read on and see what Paul says about this calling. In verse 7, it says, To all who are in Rome, he's addressing the letter to the Romans, Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say we're called to be? Saints. That's your calling. But wait, Mike, that doesn't say whether I'm a teacher or not. No, it doesn't. It says who you are to be, not just what you are to do. We're called to be saints. That's who I, that's the be, the character of who I am. I'm called to be a saint. That word saints, it's, it's hagias or holy, holy ones. I am called to be holy, dedicated, consecrated, set apart. I have, I'm, I'm set apart for a special unique cause. Now I just want to separate uh, the word saint in the biblical sense from the word saint in the Catholic sense. Now in, in Catholicism, in Roman Catholicism, there's they use the word saint for two very different things. One is the typical biblical sense that we use it. We're called to be saints. Then there's another special category of people that are saints. And pretty much you have to already be dead to become a saint. If you do become a saint, like the Pope recently canonized or made, made, made it so that Mother Teresa was a saint. Mother Ther now what does that mean? She's a saint. What does that mean? Well, that means that the Catholic Church is saying she's no longer in purgatory uh, if she was ever there. She's certainly in heaven 
which means that you can now pray to her because she has access through heaven. She has access to pray for you and to do, you know, spiritual favors for you in a sense. Um, the Bible never says anything like that. And the, the whole Catholic idea of saints in the sense of this exalted person who's, who's been brought up out of purgatory, it's based on a big construct that, that is within the Catholic Church that's just not in Scripture. It's purgatory indulgences, the idea of intermediaries, the idea of, of the treasury of merit, of earning grace. These, this is all wrapped up together. So biblically, there's no such thing as a special saint who didn't go to purgatory and just went to be with the Lord. We all go to be with the Lord. And we actually talked a while ago about the probably the most prominent purgatory passage in First Corinthians um, a couple months ago, I think it was. So, so we're not talking about that kind of saint. We're talking about every single believer, whether you're a pastor, a teacher, an evangelist, uh, a ministry worker, a prayer warrior, a janitor, whatever you do, whether or not you even serve in the local fellowship in any capacity, you're called to be a saint. You're called to be holy. I'm called to have a life of holiness. And I think that a, a younger version of me was more worried about what I'm supposed to do for the Lord, like ministry occupational, instead of who I'm supposed to be for the Lord in character and godliness. And what we know for sure is, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I know who I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be holy. So <clears throat> my advice for those of you that might be wondering, what's my calling? Here's my, my counsel to you, and I think it's biblical, is just like Paul, be his bondservant and let him call you to be whatever else he wants you to be. Day to day, be the bondservant of Christ. Be his slave and find out the rest as you go. This is what Colossians 3.17 says. It doesn't tell you what to do. It just says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I remember this verse hitting me when I was a teenager and being like, Everything I do, do it unto the Lord. I don't even know how to do that. Because what? I'm unspiritual. That's why I don't know how to do that. And as I grow in Christ, I learn how to literally do everything I do unto the Lord. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Matthew 6.33, Jesus tells us, tells us this basically the same thing. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, money, finances, shelter, all those necessities of life, you know, the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities of life. Those things will be added to you as you just seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. So I think that um, there's a great principle that I've learned uh, from, I think it was Greg Kokel, who's an a apologist. Uh, he's got some great stuff online. Stand to Reason is a really great ministry that he, that he has. What he says is this. He says, bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. And this is a great way to do things. It's great to say, you know what? I'll just serve however I can, wherever I can. And what tends to happen is whatever I'm good at sort of rises to the surface. If you tend to be a good speaker, people start to notice this and they start to ask you to do that stuff more. If you tend to be good with children, people notice this and they start to ask you to do that more. If you're a good organizer you're, you're, or, or you're, you're a, a faithful worker and you're diligent, you're going to get given tasks that are appropriate to your gift set. And as the leadership in the church, as one of the leaders in the church, I'm always looking at people, hoping I'll notice their gift set so that I could ask them to do things and give them opportunities. And of course, then what really matters is just faithfulness, that they'll actually follow through with it and not forget about it and then avoid eye contact with you. <laughs> but if you bloom where you're planted and you just take, hey, man, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to do it for the Lord. Like, you guys need a janitor? I'll do that. I'll do that for the Lord. But as you're a janitor, we keep noticing. You get pulled aside and you're witnessing and you're sharing with these people. Like, hey, man. Have you thought about doing evangelism? Because you just bloom where you're planted. That's the idea. Use your gifts and it'll all kind of come out on its own. Um, <clears throat> so personal character is the primary way that you fulfill your calling to be a saint. It's personal character and godliness. It's more important that I'm, I'm a man of patience and integrity and self-control, that I'm a man of godliness and kindness and gentleness, that I'm a man of honesty, um, than it is that I'm a skilled teacher. Because... You can be an awesome Christian and serve the Lord with all those character qualities and not even be a teacher. Or you could be a teacher, a great teacher, and not have the character qualities, and it's just a matter of time before you crash and burn. As we've all seen it. I, anytime a ministry leader falls, I take it as a personal warning. You could, you could go too, Mike. Watch out. Watch out. Watch your heart. Guard your heart. Guard your life. 
It's not about skill. It's about character. It's all about character. And that's, that's the beautiful thing. That's why in the scriptures, it talks about qualifications for elders. And I can never say this enough times for elders and leaders in the church. And every qualification is about character. And then it finally says, and able to teach. <laughs> right? So they have to have all these character qualifications in the pastoral epistles, First Timothy, Titus. And then finally, oh yeah, and able to teach. And I'd rather be at a church with a, with a pastor who just can barely teach his way out of a paper box, who is a godly man. Like he just loves the Lord and serves Christ and has integrity. I'd rather have that than an amazing teacher who you really don't want to see him outside the pulpit because he just doesn't follow up, up with his life. Um, of course, ideally you have both <laughs> in your pastor, but let's be honest, the world doesn't always work that way. And if you have to pick, pick character every time. Yeah. Um, so then he says that this letters uh, to those who are in Rome, that would be the believers in Rome in particular, they're the beloved of God. And how do I know that God loves me? That, that makes an interesting point. Beloved of God, I'm beloved of God. Well, how do I know that? I remember feeling in my life uh, so many times like, like I doubted God's love for me. Like I'd sin and I'd mess up and then I'm feeling fearful. I'm feeling like I'm out of his love. And that I, I really thought I had to have like this time of worship and going to, getting to a Bible study and having sort of a special moment before I then felt back in the love of God. And I may not have been experiencing the right relationship with God, but I was never out of his love. At no point did God stop loving me. And there was a point where my walk shifted and I went deeper and more mature. And I... <laughs> I suddenly thought I'd, I'd, I'd actually believe what the Bible said about this. And it says, right, for God demonstrated his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about this. If I don't feel like God loves me, he's demonstrated it. He's showed me he loves me. How can I look at the cross and think that doesn't apply to me? Do you think God wasn't aware of you personally on the cross? Or everything you'd ever do, right or wrong in life? His love for you is unstoppable. In fact, in the Old Testament, when you see the word loving kindness or God's love, it's actually the, the Hebrew word chesed. And this is one Hebrew word that's worth learning. Chesed. Yeah, like chesed, he loved me, so he must. <laughs> so chesed, right? Chesed is, is basically, uh, it, it's one of those words when you're translating from language to language, where there's no one word in the new language that really fits. And this is why they'll sometimes translate it with two or three words. Hesed will sometimes be translated God's long-suffering love. Because the one word hesed, it's, it's like, it's more than just love. It's like loyal love. Like his love that's just like dependable and reliable. Like he says to them, I've loved you with an everlasting love. This, it's, it's not just that he loves you. It's how he loves you. It's the quality of God's love. You are the beloved of God. And when my, my, my walk shifted was when I realized that the cross is a constant testimony of God's love for me. Not a one-time activity in a moment of passion. It is a constant testimony of God's present love for me. And that, uh, that changed everything. And then it hits you. If I don't feel loved by God, my feelings are stupid. <laughs> and it's very liberating to be able to say, my feelings are just being stupid. And to know that that's true. Because that happens a lot, <laughs> to me anyway. <laughs> so, so then he goes on, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. This is a frequent opening and closing, especially in Paul's epistles. He says, grace to you and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Um, a lot of people point out the order of these things, that grace comes first and then peace. And that's absolutely true. I mean, I don't get peace with God without the grace of God. I don't earn peace with God. I don't, if I do this and this and this, then I can have peace with, no, no, no. It's all grace that gives me peace. God's wonderful grace imparts peace into my life. That's the order. Um, but I've also noticed that it's the word from. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The from is it's from him. The grace comes from him. The peace comes from him. Some people are searching for inner peace. Good luck. My peace doesn't come from me or from within me. It comes from him, just like his grace. It's all a gift of God. There's nothing in me that earns it or, or, or somehow acquires it. I simply am given it as a gift. And I love how he says this to Christians who already have God's grace and peace. 
Don't they? Don't they already have his grace and peace? And he prays for them, grace and peace more. Because we can have more. I mean, I have his saving grace and I have peace with him. We're no longer at war. But there are other senses in which I can still gain, I don't know, more kindness from the Lord experientially in my life. And, uh, and so he prays that for them. And I think that, that the book of Romans, it does impart grace and peace to us. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he starts his letter that way. Because he's about to give them some more of that understanding and comprehension of God's grace. Um, so grace and peace or forgiveness and the comfort of that forgiveness. Now, some people teach peace apart from grace. That you can have peace with God without his grace. That you can earn it. That, you, that if you're a good person, if you have a good heart, if you have a good mind, if you have a good life. If, you, if you've done overall more good than bad, then you can be okay with God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's grace that gives peace, which is so much better <laughs> than earning it. And also others, they teach grace, but they lack peace. And I think that that has to do with, I know the doctrines of God's grace up here, but I maybe I'm not really knowing them here. You know? And there's like... There's something about, like, I just picture like an old smiling saint, you know, an old believer who's just been walking with the Lord for so many years. And then all these things are going on and people are worried about the election and people worried about this and they're freaking out about all these things. And then he's just like, oh, God is good. God is good. Oh, praise the Lord. And you're like, I want some of that. You know, I want that peace that goes not only knowing God's grace, but knowing his peace. And so hopefully we'll go deeper into this as we get in the word. Uh, Verse eight, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, sometimes when uh, the Bible says the phrase whole world, it's talking about the known world to the author. I mean, obviously Paul's not like through the whole world in, in southern Africa, they're talking, maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but he's talking about the known world. Everywhere he goes, everywhere Paul goes, you know, there's no news channel. He doesn't know what's happening in China. He's, he's just talking about what he knows. So the whole world, that's a typical way of speak, speaking for them. And he's thankful for their faith because it's spoken throughout the world. Um, but I wonder what was actually spoken about them. I wonder what Paul was overhearing about the Romans, the Roman Christians, the, the believers in Rome. I'll bet you it wasn't all good. I'll bet you he'd overhear it and he'd probably hear a conversation where someone like, man, those kooky Christians are in Rome too. Did you hear? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Gladiators say they refuse to fight. You know, like, like what was it like? What were they saying about them? Um, Oftentimes what is shamed by the world is praised in Christianity. And it may be that what Paul heard was insults and it made him smile. It may be that he hears, he hears believers being insulted in Rome and he's like, yeah, they're doing it. They're doing it. They're living for the Lord and they're being insulted fine. The world doesn't really like us being Christians. They want one of two things. They want you sometimes to just leave Christianity and abandon your faith. But very often, they just want you to water it down and make it more worldly. I'm fine with you. Are you one of those Christians that endorses, you know, like gay marriage and stuff like that? Like, you're cool with that, right? Okay, all right. Well, that's okay. I accept you. What if I said no? What if I said that I thought that was against nature and it hurt, it hurt everybody, including the couple doing it? Oh, well, you're a bigot. You're evil. You're this, you're that. And then you're spoken of. <laughs> but, uh, but maybe it's to God's glory. The world says to us, don't be an extremist. Just don't be an extremist. Mike, I remember being told this by family. It's fine. You're going to follow Jesus, but don't take it too far. Like, just keep it in its rightful place. And I'm like, Jesus is rightful place? On the throne of everything? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) I'll do that. Keep it in its rightful place. (laughs) I think that extremist Christians are the absolute best kind. And they cannot be compared to extremists from other religions very well. Like, for instance, okay, an extremist Hindu is probably not out there blowing things up. Like perhaps an extremist Muslim might be. And, and you can justify it within Islam doing that sort of thing. But you can't justify that in Christianity. I mean, you run into a Christian who's an extremist, and so they're extremely loving, extremely self-sacrificial. They refuse to take revenge on those who have wounded and hurt them. They're obedient to government, and they always pay their taxes. They're honest. They will not steal and they feel obligated to work even when their boss isn't looking. Be an extremist. They keep telling other people about forgiveness 
and how they can have their sins washed. Be an extremist. And just know that others might not like it. But even if they're just bagging on you, at least your faith is being spoken of throughout the world. So Paul also, he thanks God through Christ Jesus, it says here. And uh, just on a side note, like how do you thank God through Christ Jesus? Have you thought about that? How do I thank God through Christ Jesus? Like, is it, is it, do I have to say it a certain way? No. The answer is, I do everything through Christ Jesus. Everything. I pray through Christ Jesus. I am saved through Christ Jesus. I enter into relationship with God through Christ Jesus. So when I thank God, I do it through Christ Jesus because he's my bridge. He's, he's the mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. So he says, I thank God through Christ Jesus because what Jesus said, I am the way. The way for what? Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> so he's how I connect with God at all times. And uh, it's his righteousness that clothes me. And this is why, especially in a pluralistic society like the one we have nowadays, I, I pretty much always pray in Jesus' name. Um, not because I have to say that phrase at the end of a prayer. It's because I want to. And it's because I want to, no matter where my prayers are hurt, who hears them or where they're hurt, I want them to be known. I'm praying to God through Christ Jesus. He's, he's my savior. He's my salvation. Then in verse 9, he says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. Um, and we'll come back to that phrase, with my spirit. It's interesting. I serve with my spirit. In chapters 7 and 8, he'll talk about this theologically, this idea of serving God with your spirit. So, I, uh, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making a request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Now, Paul is like the favorite of the hard-nosed Christians, I, th I think. Am I wrong? Because that's me. I'm one of them. Um, he's like our favorite. Like he's like, man, Paul, like, he's just like, Hwah! like riot or revival, like nothing else in between. That's all he's going to get, one or the other. And I love that too. But we have to remember too that he was a very loving man. He had never met these believers. And he's, he's like saying, oh, without ceasing, I, I make mention of you in my prayers. I keep you guys in my prayers constantly. I want to come to you in the will of God just so I can fellowship with you guys. I've been hearing about your faith and I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Like he's a compassionate, loving man. He's not stoic and unemotional and like sort of distant from other people around him and disconnected. He, he deeply cares about these people, which allows him to be deeply wounded by them. If you read the New Testament, you can see it. But he's willing to do it. And after them wound him, he's willing to just keep loving him because that's what God did for him. So he was a very loving man. He's been praying for them without even knowing them because um, he knew they needed it because Rome is messed up. Rome is messed up. It's like a, it's a, it's a central sin location of the earth at that point in time. Kind of like uh, Las Vegas, you know, right? Or that other church down the street. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just play it. That's not even true. Um, but no, but it's a central sinful location. So he's praying for the church in Rome. And it, it may be that he's been lifting them up because they're untaught. How did the gospel get to Rome? We don't even know who took it there. Just some random believer happened to be traveling on business. And then took the gospel to Rome and people receive it and get saved. And he's like, man, I've been wanting to come visit you guys to give you the rest of the details because you're believers, but you don't know nothing. And so then he writes this, this book for us to read in Romans. Um, so it may very well be that, that nobody apostolically was at Rome yet. And, um, and now there's something else that's really interesting here. Um, Paul clearly in verses 9 and 10 did not always know what God's will was. He did not always know. Even the apostle Paul didn't know. He's like, I've been looking for a way. Finally, if by some means I may at last find a way in the will of God to come to you. I've been trying. I've been praying, God, I want to go see them. I want to find them. But I don't, but I haven't found the way in the will of God to do that. Every step of Paul's life was not a clear revelation. And you read the book of Acts and this is clear. Sometimes they go places because it just seems smart. And sometimes the Holy Spirit guides and directs them to go somewhere. And it happens in both ways. I think that's really interesting. Um, some people, they, uh, they, they have the extremes where they, they want God to lead and direct every moment of life and every step they take. And this leads to unstable persons. It leads to people to be unstable. Once I got a, a call from a lady who asked me on a prayer line, she was like, I need to know God's will about what kind of cereal I'm supposed to eat. She wasn't kidding. 
And I tried to counsel her and I tried to give, I was like, I don't think God cares. I mean, not to my knowledge. Does he care what cereal you eat as long as you're being a good steward of your body and all that? But she couldn't handle it. And she felt a lot of angst over this. But my heart goes out to her because I understand. I understand that this sense of I want God to direct and guide every step. But I don't think God wants to direct and guide every step. Why else would he have written the book of Proverbs? Here's a book of wisdom so you can make good decisions. But don't make decisions. I have to tell you everything to do step by step. I think he wants us to make decisions. So some people are too extreme on thinking God should guide me every step of the way. But then there's other people that follow the other extreme and they just dismiss God's leading altogether. As if God never speaks to us, never guides us, never directs us. Yet we have so many examples of him doing this in the scripture. You know, there's so many times he did guide and direct. And so some steps are revealed. Um, in fact, there's a story of Joshua and the Gibeonites. Uh, Joshua leading the people of Israel. And he, um, he's told as he's entering into the land after these 40 years of, of wandering, he's told don't make any treaties or any bargains with the people in the land. We're driving them out. Don't make deals with them where you'll leave them alone because I'm, I'm judging them. God's judging them. Well, the Gibeonites, this one group of people, they see the destruction of Jericho and then they send a group of people over to see Joshua. And they come and they, they're very stealthy. They come wearing, uh, wearing old clothes, tattered clothes. They bring moldy bread. They bring old torn and sewn wineskins and they just show up all dirty and yucky like they've been on a long journey. So when they get to Joshua, they go, oh, we've come from a far away land. Now I have Aladdin in my head, far away place, the camels and Rome or something. Anyway, so I come from a far away land and we want to make a treaty with you because God is obviously with you. So then he, they offer to do a treaty with him and he makes the treaty thinking that they're not from the land of Israel, they're from some other place. And then, haha! they find out they've been tricked. Um, and you're like, what would have protected him from making this move? Everything seemed wise. They looked like what they were saying was true. Well, in Joshua 9, 14, there's a really interesting verse. It says this. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. The implication is, had they prayed about it, God would have given them direction. So we don't want to be so bold in our wisdom that we aren't prayerful about each step and each moment of our lives. But we also want to be able to make decisions because God, I think, wants us to make decisions. And that seems clear. So a balance is to make prayerful decisions. It's part of God's plan for you to decide things. And God can and does use you deciding things. Yeah, he knew ahead of time all this stuff. And he, it's all planned out. However, he works all that out according to the counsel of his will. Um, so verse 11, he says, For I long to see you. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So he wants to give them a spiritual gift, to impart to them a spiritual gift. I think what he means, and I'm just guessing here because that's a little vague. I think he's talking about his apostolic ministry. That's the spiritual gift. He's like, I want to I give you the grounding of the gospel so you know all the teachings that maybe you haven't fully heard yet. And, um, and he's writing some of them to them, which we get to read. But that word established, here it is in chapter 1, and then it's going to hit us again in chapter 16 at the end of the book. So flip real quick to Romans 16, 25. And let's look at how he uses that word a little bit later. And uh, while you're on your way there, let me read to you again verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. Then in Romans 16, 25, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you, to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So he's, he's saying to them, I want you to be established and your establishment will happen through the word of God, through the proclamation of the Old and New Testament. And that's really what it is. You have here um, the, the preaching of his gospel, which we, we, we have the same gospel throughout the New Testament. The preaching of Jesus Christ, that's in the New Testament. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, that's the Old Testament. Um, through the prophetic, made known by the, sorry, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. So he's talking here, what we have nowadays is our Old and New Testaments. And that's what we'll do what? Establish them. 
So you can go back to, to Romans 1, but there's three truths I want to point out that we learn from this. Being established as a Christian is not automatic. I might be saved. It doesn't mean I'll be established. I'll be grounded. I'll be founded. I'll be strengthened. I'll be, you know, I always think of like a sumo wrestlers. You ever watch sumo wrestling? I like, I think it's interesting to watch. So they, they grab the salt, they throw it in the air. That's kind of weird. And then they, then they stomp, boom. And they kind of hunker down, you know, like they're ready. They're ready. Um, that to me, that's like being established. Like I'm established, like, boom, come on. You know, you're established in the faith. Like I'm, I've got a well-rounded understanding of Christ, both in my mind and in my heart. And, um, and this does not happen automatically. That's the first truth. The second truth we learn is that though it may not happen automatically, we really do need it. I need to be established. And this is why he's like, I really want to go minister to you guys because you need to be established. You need to get grounded. You need to grow in Christ. And the third one is that establishing, being established, it happens when we have the scriptures expounded to us, which is why we do what in church? We dig in the word of God because this is what establishes us in our faith. So then in verse 12, he says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. This word uh, encouraged together, it's actually just one Greek word. It's a sort of neat word that, that we don't have a word for in English, right? But it's encouraged together. Like there's a togetherness that brings courage to our hearts as a group. And I like, I like to use the word fellowship for that because I think that's what fellowship is, man. I'm like strengthened in my walk, man. I'm, I'm a stronger believer. I'm encouraged in my faith. I'm, I'm lifted in my heart and my mind closer to the Lord. My eyes are set upon Christ because I just spent time with believers who love Jesus. So he wants to be encouraged together. Um, this is be, believers being believers close to other believers. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, if I could, let's go to Psalm 133. I want to talk about fellowship for a second. In Psalm 133, there's this beautiful Psalm, really short. It's just three verses. And it's about the idea of fellowship. And I want to study it with you. In Psalm 133, it says, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Now let me explain it a little bit, right? Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That, that concept is when we're brethren and we're dwelling together in the unity of Christ, we're fellowshipping. We're encouraging one another together in the Lord. It's good and pleasant. It's good like it's good for you, like healthy food. But it's also pleasant like chocolate, <laughs> like not healthy food. <laughs> and so fellowship, it's good and pleasant. It's just like, mm, that was I needed that. I needed that. It's beautiful. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. And you might be like, what on earth is that talking about? Aaron was the first high priest. And in his anointing to represent the Holy Spirit, they poured oil on his head. And the picture is that it goes from his head running down his beard, running down his garments, like he's just covered in oil. Well, oil represents the Holy Spirit. When you guys dwell together in unity as Christians, it's like getting an anointing from the Holy Spirit. In our connection with each other, we experience connection with God. It's, it's like the, the oil running down the beard of Aaron, down the edge of it. It's like all over the place. It's, it's beautiful. I receive more of the Holy Spirit in my fellowship and sweetness with other believers when it's in Christ. And then in verse 3, it says, It is like the dew of Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon, is, it's still there in Israel. It's actually north of Israel. And then you've got, you've got Mount Hermon. Now, this is where the majority of the water supply comes from in Israel. The, the snow packs onto Mount Hermon. It melts and goes through the porous rock of Mount Hermon and comes out the base of the mountain, starting what's called the Jordan River. Maybe you've heard of it. And the Jordan River flows down into the Sea of Galilee, comes out of the Sea of Galilee, flows down, 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 all the way to the Dead Sea where it dies. And <laughs> so the idea is that Mount Hermon is, is seen as like, that's our water source. Like in California, 
we get most of our water from Northern California. Thanks guys. <laughs> and so we're like, oh yeah, it's like that water coming down from them. So he's saying it's like the, it's like the, uh, the water on Mount Hermon. So it brings life to us. It brings us, it, it, it basically brings life as it comes down the nation, down from North to South. So it's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. Well, the mountains of Zion are more in Southern Israel. They're in more in Southern Israel. In fact, that's Jerusalem, mountains of Zion. That's the Jerusalem area. So what are we saying when the when the dew of Hermon comes down to Mount Zion? It may not even be that the river is bringing it down. I mean, the Jordan River doesn't go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is over 2,000 feet above sea level. It, it's, it's below sea level even as it passes by that area. Um, so what, what are we to take it to mean? It, it seems to mean it, it's as though the blessing that normally comes on Hermon comes all the way down to Zion. And now you've just got water coming to Zion. I think what it's saying is this. I think it's saying that when I fellowship with other believers, their spiritual gifts become something that blesses me and blesses my heart and blesses my life. And so it's as though something that is so distant that I don't have access to, I now have access to through my brothers and sisters in Christ as we minister one another's gifts to each other, whether it's encouragement or, or um, discouragement, whatever your gift happens to be. One or the other. So, so it's descending upon the mount of, mountains of Zion. For, the, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Well, the blessing is Christ. I mean, he goes to the cross there in the mountains of Zion. Life forevermore. And, uh, and so he brings us together. And the unity we have is ultimately unity in Christ. I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, now, let, let's see if we can go just a bit further. Now, I do not... I'm sorry. Back to Romans 1. Back to Romans 1, verse 13. He says here, now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you, just as among other, the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. Now, so Paul, on his missionary journey, now, was the Holy Spirit with him on this journey? Obviously, yes. I mean, the Holy Spirit sent him out. We read about Acts 13. The Holy Spirit sent them, sent them out on this, on this missionary stuff to be an apostle. Um, but yet he's planning to go to Rome. Like he's actually drawn up plans. Like, okay, then we'll go over here. We'll go over there. Fail. Many times he tries to go. We'll go over here. Nope, fail. Door closed, door closed, door closed in his face. And he's unable to go to Rome. And this is why he's like, that's why I want to come to you. Like, in the will of God. Obviously, it hasn't been God's will for me to go because my plans have failed. I've tried and tried and it didn't work out. Ministry plans sometimes fail. Maybe you have an agenda. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to go over here. We'll minister this way and God's going to use it. And people, yeah. And then you're like, yeah, I lost my keys. And then I, and the, ho the hotel room didn't have my reservation. And I spent the whole time just trying to find a place to sleep. I didn't minister to anybody. <laughs> you know, we get really passionate on mission trips because you, you're like, now my life's supposed to matter. And you're like, you should be mattering before you go on the trip. But, but so ministry plans sometimes fail. And I think that we, we should just know this. God is still in it. If, if Paul's ministry plans could fail and he just saw it as God's will, closing and opening doors, so to speak, then we can look at our lives the same way. Um, so yeah, Paul didn't uh, pick who he was going to minister to exactly. And he says here that he's going to minister to the barbarians and the Greeks. Now, you're like, who's the barbarians exactly? Is this like Conan's group? Like, who's this? Who, who are these people? Well, the barbarians are basically, think of it this way. We, we're very familiar with Jew-Gentile distinctions. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Gentile. Well, to the Romans, they had a Greek culture. So they're like, are you a Greek or are you a barbarian? So the uncultured, you're, you're, not, a, you're not a Greek Roman type person, Greco-Roman. Well, you're a barbarian. And so he's, he's basically saying, look, I'm... I am indebted to minister to the people you think are barbarians and to, and to you, you smart people as well in Rome. <laughs> so I like how he says that. I think it's interesting. Um, God used him for both. And so to the Jews, Paul had to talk about how he was going to minister to the Jews and the Gentiles. And to the Romans, he had to talk about how he was going to minister to them and the barbarians. It seems like every group has a us-them somewhere. There's like, well, the gospel's with us, but can it really go to them? Those barbarians over there. <laughs> so for us, for our hearts, I mean, the gospel goes out to all with no partiality. So we need to absolve ourselves of any sense in which we consider someone else a barbarian. 
those people won't accept Christ. Those people will never know Christ. Those people aren't interested in Christ. Um, that really devalues the power of the Holy Spirit to transform and change people's lives. And so no partiality, no partiality. And that includes the rich. I shouldn't be like, well, the poor can get saved, but those rich people never will. Why not? Why are they barbarians? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just harder for them. Right? Yeah, sometimes it is. Yeah. All right, so um, verse 15, it says, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. I can't, I can't help but notice Paul's commitment to his ministry. As much as is in me, everything that's in me is willing. I want to go there and I want to minister to you guys. Now keep in mind, travel is not generally fun. I don't know, maybe to you it's fun, but it's not vacation. It's just travel. <laughs> I don't like travel on airplanes. Imagine doing it how Paul did. By boats that got had problems. It's journeys that were sometimes very long, very arduous, difficulties, discomfort, lack of finances. Sometimes he went without food because of this stuff. And everything that's in him is ready to go all the way to Rome, which is like, spiritually speaking, the armpit of the world at the time. You know, spiritually it was. It was like unpleasant. And um, and he's totally ready to go there. And I'm, I'm almost ashamed of my own hesitancy to sometimes do things because they're discomforting as far as ministry to certain people or certain situations or something like that. So it's a good lesson for us to learn. Good lesson for us. And, and in Acts chapter 28, we finally see him actually visiting Rome. He's in handcuffs at the time. <laughs> He finally finds a way in the will of God to get to Rome. <laughs> and it's not certainly the way he planned. But he goes there and he freely ministers and people come to him and he's spreading and preaching the gospel and teaching. And um, we're going to end here, but I'm, so we won't do verse 16 until next week. But I'm super glad. Think about this. The dynamic of Paul, many times he tried to go to Rome and God did not allow it. Did not allow it. If God had allowed it, I don't think he ever would have written Romans. God is at work in our frustrations and in our difficulties and the detours of life, if we're just putting first his kingdom and his righteousness and seeking him, then we can trust that all the other dynamics, he's got it worked out. I used to think I'd want to know what my life's work was by the time I was 30. I'm 38 now and counting. I'm a little older now than I was when I said that. But <laughs> the, um, the thing is, it's like I'm 38 now and I'm, I don't know what my life's work would be. <laughs> And why, why do I need to know? I just need to know the step in front of me to serve the Lord where I'm at right now. And why am I worried about my life's work? My life's work. Is, is it more about my glamour or his glory? Is it more about serving Christ and honoring him? Like what if all I did was, I don't know, be a really godly man, serve the Lord in everything I do, and then die? Is that okay? Is that good enough? And then, Come into his glory and be like, Lord, I lived unto you. I died unto you for your glory. That's, is that not good enough? Wouldn't I, would I rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God, you know? And so, um, good word for us. So let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word and we want to be established. So please keep bringing things out, Lord. Show us this stuff and let us uh, fairly an in-depth study of this book so that we can learn why your Holy Spirit gave us these words for us today that we might be established, that we might know more about Christ and following him. And we pray that our heads, our hearts, they'd all be carried along into more Christ-likeness, Lord. We ask that your word would be glorified and you'd guide us in our lives. We just want to pray right now in context of all the stuff we've been studying. We don't know your will for our lives in detail. Um, there's so many questions we might have. So we just pray, let your will be done, whatever it is. Guide and direct us, open and close those doors. Let us have wisdom to make right decisions and good choices. And may you give us specific direction when the time comes and you want us to have that. So that we're just in your will for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in, in, a, in a biblical sense, there just is no, no place called purgatory. I mean, there's just no, I, to be absent from the body. You know, Paul said this, he, he was talking in uh, 1 Corinthians, I think it is, can't remember the verse, but he's talking to them, and I, I don't want to quote it wrong, we, we quote it wrong most of the time, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that's not the, what the verse says, that's a principle we learn from the verse, the verse actually says, he says, I'm, I'm torn between two things, 
I want to depart from this life and go to be with the Lord. But I also see that it's more needful for you that I stay, stick around. You know, come in, a lot of us might feel the same way sometimes, you know. It's more needful that I minister to others, but I'd rather go to be with the Lord. And then he says, it is far better, in my mind, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So Paul thought that if he was, if he died, he would go where? To be with the Lord. And he thought this, and the same thing is true for us. So, um, so there's no place called purgatory um, in the scriptures. There's, it just doesn't exist in the Bible. And I think it was in, sort of invented in Catholicism because it works with their whole system of, I have to keep going to mama church to get forgiveness and grace or else I'll go to purgatory. But if you take away purgatory out of the Catholic system, it kind of dismantles the whole system. I mean, it's just like, well, then what's the point of indulgences? Then, then why am I doing, why am I doing mass as a ritual, not just as something I want to do, you know, for the Lord or something? Why am I, why am I doing all these things? A lot of a Catholic's life is works that are meant to keep them out of purgatory or decrease the amount of time they'll be in there. And, um, and it's, it's a painful experience of the old, the old Catholics for the past like thousand years would call it like fire and burning and stuff like that. The newer ones are like, well, it's like angst of the soul. You know, they've just like softened it up a lot. Um, I don't know where purgatory originally came from, but I think that Catholicism found it very useful. But I don't know where it originally came from. But um, the, uh, the, the holding place, okay, there, there's, and, and this is something that's difficult in the New King James Version because they don't always translate the same Greek words the same way. So it was like Hades and Gehenna and Sheol, and these are all, that's Hebrew, the Sheol is. But they're all different words that kind of imply different things. And they don't consistently translate them in the New King James. A lot of newer translations do, so that might be easier. But basically, um, the, the place the unbeliever goes now is a, is a place of torment. It's not just a holding cell, but it's a tormentuous, it's, a diff, it's an unpleasant place. But it's not hell. Because in Revelation, you read about it, it says, and then... Hades was cast into the lake of fire. So the place now is called Hades and then the lake of fire is hell. And it was cast, Hades and all those in it were cast into hell. Um, a, uh, I think the best way to think of this is you have like a local jail and then you have a prison. And you go to local jail temporarily and then prison is for long term. And in a sense, this is, this is the deal. Like let's say you're awaiting judgment. You're guilty, but you're awaiting sentencing. You're, so you're waiting in jail in maybe a local jail as you're guilty but you're waiting for the sentence to fall when the sentence falls they transfer you to the prison and so the person who dies now is sort of in jail who's not saved is in jail waiting on the sentencing that comes uh in that final day yeah yeah and then there'll be each one will be judged according to works and it's in a, it's actually an appropriate judgment it's, it's not identical not everybody in hell experiences the exact same thing uh, which i'm really glad about that because that that's that seems fair you know as opposed to you know Hitler experiences the same thing as Gandhi because Gandhi rejected Christ. But they don't seem like they deserve the same judgment. <laughs> and they don't get it. God does it exactly, perfectly, appropriately depending on what, you know, what he knows. Uh, no, no, no. Well, no. In the sense of what you mean, no. The, the Bible uses the word heavens plural, but, it's, but it means it like this. Like you have, you have the first heaven where the birds fly, the sky. Then you have heaven where like stars and stuff are. That's outer space. And then you have heaven like God's where God's dwelling is and that's where we, we will be and even that's temporary because there will be a new heavens and a new earth but we'll be with God the whole time um, it, it gets a little complicated I thought it'd be more simple than that but as you read the scriptures there's a little more to it than maybe we would have originally thought because mm -mm, they've already made that choice so the scripture says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment so they have once you die that's it is judgment. Um, now, a lot of religions out there try to get ground with people by saying, it's okay, after you die, you get another chance. As if by making their after-death experience better in, their, in people's opinions, they can get more followers. So um, uh, Mormonism does this. They say, oh, well, it's okay. After you die, you, you can still... But my grandpa wasn't Mormon. Oh, that's okay. Missionaries will preach to him in the afterlife and he'll have another chance. The problem is the Bible doesn't say that. And so... That gives us a sense of urgency to share with people now. Um, so yeah, it, yeah. after death, there, there seems to be no choice. And an example of this is the, the parable Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man. 
And he goes, there was a rich man who fared sumptuously. He had all this kind of money and wealth. And there was a guy, a poor guy, a beggar, Lazarus, who sat at his gate hoping to get crumbs, basically, in donations. Well, they both die. But Lazarus, he was a believer. He, he, he was true to God. So, you know, he's, he's being comforted. Um, and then the rich man is here being tormented. And the rich man says, uh, Lazarus is with Abraham. He's in the same place faithful Abraham went. And he's being comforted there. And so the rich man yells over at Lazarus. Uh, or to Abraham. Abraham, oh man, send Lazarus over here to just give me a drop of water. You know, something. And he goes, no, 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 no one, no one's, there is no, there's no going between our two places, you know. And then he goes, well, then send Lazarus up to tell my brothers not to do what I did because I don't want them coming here. Meaning if he could repent at that point, he would have. He's like, he's like, oh, I know I was wrong. I see it and everything, but it's not an option anymore. Um, so in, in a sense, um, it, well, there's no option, but in a sense, it, you, you hit a point where the offer to rejuvenate your life through faith in Christ is no longer available after death. That, that's what I, how I think it is. It's not, it's not available anymore. You know, and you might be like, but I'll change, I'll change. Well, you can't because without the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't change anyway. It's just empty promises. You know, it's just empty promises. And so at a certain point, um, it's, there is no more, there's no way out. There's nothing else. There's just, just perfect justice from God. Whatever exactly that looks like, uh, only God will know. And we'll see, you know, eventually. Yeah. I hope I answered those questions. But, okay. Sometimes I wonder if I, as soon as you hear it wrong. And you go on for five minutes, and they're like, that's not what I was asking. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. My belief, and I say this because you really, it really is a little tough to figure this issue out, I think. My belief is that that, that, that was a real place that was before the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that he cleared that place out and brought them into the presence of God. Um, that's my, that's, that's where I sit. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem like a parable. It seems like a true story. And it's not introduced as a parable. He just says, and he gives names. He's never given names in the other parables. and Yeah. And, that, and I think the answer is because it's all. So it's like God's waiting till the very last. Okay. Is till everyone's dealt with. And then it's, okay, now here you all are. Now, boom, you're all cast out so to speak. And how different will the lake of fire be from the Hades experience? I don't know. Maybe they won't even notice much of a difference. I, I don't know. I don't know how that works. But it's no longer, there's no longer an in for, the, for Hades because it's cast in the lake of fire. There's, that's it. No one else will be condemned. That This is it. It's God's wrapping it all up in a bow in a sense. Um, well, I don't know if it's... <laughs> this is a good question. Gandhi, Gandhi and Hitler yeah. both end up in the lake of fire. Degrees... But I don't know if they're like degrees Celsius. Okay. Because I don't... Here's what I'm confident of. Okay. Because I think that poetic language is used throughout Revelation. Right? There's a dragon. And the dragon is Satan. And the dragon comes down. And he tries to... A flood comes out. And all these things. But a lot of this is poetic. Now, poetic doesn't mean nonsense. There's a real life thing that corresponds to this poetry. So when I read Lake of Fire, I go, well, this could easily be poetic. But it'll be something that is rightfully described poetically as a lake of fire. So it's like, not good. And Jesus describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. But he also says, uh, like to Chorazin and Bethsaida, I think it is. He says, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, these two cities. He says, uh, if, the, if the works that have been done in you, that were done in you, were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. And then he goes on and says, in the day of judgment, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Yeah. And then, uh, so there's, in other words, Sodom and Gomorrah, as bad as they were, them, re them boldface rejecting Christ like this is even worse. Yeah, and, this, and it raises a lot of questions. Like You're like, oh, that, oh, I wonder about this and this. But I, I like it because I think the scripture is answering these questions for us. Yeah, and James is bold. He goes, don't too many of you seek to be teachers. You're going to get judged more strictly, and, and rightly so. You're asking me questions about God. I'm answering and you're believing. I better be judged more strictly. If I don't speak the truth on these issues, woe to me. Or if I, maybe I just misunderstand it. And then now you do too, because I did. That's, so so it kind of freaks me out a little bit. Think about that. <laughs>
And it should. <laughs> it should, man. I'm, I'm accountable. I better speak the truth. I think they'll be given, uh, I think God appropriately weighs all that. He appropriately weighs all of it so that, and only God could because he knows every aspect and every issue and of the heart and of the mind and all that stuff. So this is not me saying, don't worry, everyone's saved, don't worry. Like, no, we know that's not true. But we know that God is just and, and he factors these things in. He, he even factors in like, oh, but you were a child. Like, I mean, we see this in scripture where he does that kind of thing. So, so I'm comforted by that. And there's a lot of scripture to support this. And I'm going to go to Kirk after this. Let me share something real quick. Um, there's scripture that says like he who sins um, uh, basically without, without fully knowing what he's doing, he'll be beaten with few stripes. And then he who sins knowingly, really knowing, will be beaten with many. In other words, sin still requires punishment. It still was sinful. But if you had done this full knowing, it would, have, it would be more punishable. And so God perfectly weighs all this stuff. I think the best scripture for that is this is the verse where Jesus is talking to Pilate and um, and he says to Pilate, um, he, you know, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin because Pilate's like, I have power to kill you or let you go. And he goes, yeah, but the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Wait, Jesus, some sins greater than others. It was one sin, but it was it was worse than and Pilate did in condemning Christ was sinful. You know, he, what should he have done? I mean, it should have not. Yeah, but God had to have this happen. Oh yeah, it was going to happen, but um, but it doesn't make it good. It's like it's like the eating of the fruit. This is all yeah, it's in God's plan. But don't just because God planned on you doing that doesn't mean it was okay. <laughs> you know, we'll get there in Romans. Like, shall we sin more? Like, if it's God, is it God's will for me to sin? And that's creepy <laughs> stuff. But yeah. Um, one example could be this. You just say, so you don't think anyone should go to hell. And then let's say they say yes, because that's what they're leading towards, right? No one should go to hell. So then you say, do you think that like rapists should be punished? Do you think that murderers should be punished? Do you think that Adolf Hitler should go to hell? Like if anybody should, shouldn't he? Shouldn't this guy go to hell? Adolf Hitler? Don't you think he should go to hell? Why do you, now, so you don't you don't think love factors in? Shouldn't he not go to hell because God loves people? So would you be cool if you went to heaven and there was a whole little group in heaven that were all like Sieg Heil because it was all the Nazis and they didn't, none of them go to hell because no one goes to hell because God loves everyone. Well, heaven wouldn't even be heaven. It'd just be hell on, in heaven. <laughs> Helven or something. I don't know what you call it. So... So you might, you might bring it out of them. Get them to admit that there's somebody that deserves to be judged and deserves hell. And then you say, okay. but So where does God's love factor in? God's love factors in, in that he provided a way out of hell for these sinners. And how can it be right for a just God who loves people, yet he's just? So a good judge is going to punish the sinner, is going to deal with the wickedness. But a loving God wants to save them. So how does God reconcile this? Well, he has Jesus pay the price, but he also does something. When this, let's say Hitler got saved, which I think would have been beautiful if he got saved. And he gets saved and he puts his tr truly puts his faith in Christ. Not like says a few empty words on his deathbed, but he really puts his faith in Christ. You know what happens? God washes him of his sin, gives him a new nature in Christ, and he will not be the same Hitler in heaven. He will be a saved, changed, transformed man for the glory of God. So God's love is shown in the cross and the cross being the way in which we can be saved. Um, how do you, you know, say that to the person? I pray God gives you wisdom to, <laughs> to communicate it. I think questions are great though. Get them to admit that at least somebody deserves to go to hell, you know. And you can even make up a person and be like, let's say a guy, he drives drunk, you know, and he hits somebody and kills this lady and she's got three kids that are orphans now. And then he goes out and he drives drunk again. And he hits one of the kids, kills him because they're his next door neighbor. So he hits them and then he gets away with it because his buddy's one of the judges and he bribes him and he's rich. Then he goes out again and he hits another one of the kids. Now there's only one kid left. Doesn't this guy deserve something? You know, like, because <laughs> there's a sense for justice. You're like, man, get him. You know, like there's, there's a part of you that wants justice to happen. 
But you're scared because you realize that means it'll happen to you. And that's why we need Jesus. And this is good. I, I should realize it's going to happen to me. Yeah. All right, well, um, that's been fun. You guys, thanks for coming out in the, in the rain, in the torrential rain for Southern California anyway. While I was dead, you sought me out and gave your life to me. There is no greater love than this to do what you did for me.